Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, where we talk about rule one style investing from Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. And we are drifting rapidly into a broad overall view of your finances, I think, as we move along. Um, we talk about fear and being mindful with what you're doing and how on earth to figure this stuff out. <laughs> and so one of the things we started talking about is what everybody's doing, because what are they doing to figure it out? Exactly. And we've sort of, we sort of wandered into the weeds here um, a little bit as we try to understand what different kinds of buckets you could throw money into. And yeah. we've obviously we've talked about stock bucket that, you know, just think about asset groups as buckets you could put money into that would behave differently under different economic environments. Um, and different economic environments would include things like an inflationary environment that we're definitely not in now, but was, was dramatically a problem in the late 1970s. Um, a deflationary environment, which is what we are in now. The government is pouring money into the economy and we somehow can't get inflation going. Um, and then there's a an economy that is growing, where businesses are growing and doing better all the time. And and then there's an economy where they're not growing, where they're shrinking. Side question hmm. on that. Yeah. Since I've learned that inflation makes saving ridiculous because your money loses value without you doing anything just by saving it. If you're in a deflationary environment, is saving a good decision? Oh, yeah. Saving becomes fantastic. So uh, there's a time to save there, and not invest. There is. And astonishingly, the government wants you to spend. <laughs> or I should consumer economy, right? We're a consumer economy. 70% of our economy is driven by consumption as opposed to um, building out infrastructure like bridges and railroads and steel mills. It's go, you know, eat, go consume, go put on clothes, change the clothes, new clothes, new car, right? That's what drives most of our economy. And, um, and if you save, you're not contributing your fair share to keeping the economy rolling along. Uh, some people would argue that. And so when you get into a deflationary spiral, which is what our government is really trying hard to prevent us from, from falling into, um, we the spiral started when the banks started having all of these loans, these you know billions and billions of dollars of loans that they put out there went bad and that money disappeared, just gone. And that's very deflationary when you have a huge pile of wealth disappear off of people's balance sheets um, because people feel value of the dollar go up well oh, that's a really interesting idea um well, i have to think about that yeah uh well it was the beginning of a deflationary problem and there's certainly less dollars out there so yeah in that sense the value of the dollar would tend to go up um it isn't quite a one-to-one -one relationship. In other words, it didn't just go up. Um, right, because the economy crashed like crazy. It crashed. And then the federal government borrowed a huge amount of money, and it also just printed a huge amount of money, trillions of dollars, and poured that in with the idea of um, creating a, 
a kind of comfort zone among consumers like, hey, everything's okay. I'm not going to lose my job. It is okay to go and spend money and buy a new car. Right. But if people are feeling like, wow, um, I might lose my job, then they might not go spend money on the new car. They might just drive the old car another year or two. And you remember the the president started this cash for clunkers program a couple of years ago and and basically said, look, we'll we'll let you cash in your car and we'll buy it and and you can go buy a new car. And uh, and, you know, yeah, yeah, that was that was interesting. And, you know, another way to try to stimulate stimulate people buying new cars. Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, how funny. And so people turned in all these clunkers and and uh, um, the car companies got to pitch them back out to the federal government, which crushed them and took them out of the economy. And uh, unfortunately, that made used cars more valuable. it did because a lot of people want to buy a used car instead of a new car because new cars are not a great purchasing decision yes (laughs) isn't that funny i mean they're trying to get people to buy cars so so they they like let's get rid of their old cars and then they'll go buy a new car and then people didn't buy a new car they bought a used car well they, they some people bought new cars but they got rid of they got rid of a bunch of used cars and that tightened up the used car market and then it got more expensive to buy a used car so it's very hard to play with the market. The people are, people vote their own self-interest mostly, you know, and it, it becomes very difficult. You mentioned something very interesting, which is that the government printed a ton of money after the crash. It did. And what we've been promising to talk about today are currencies and investing in currencies, which I know zero about. I mean, there's, I know silver and gold exist. I know that you know various currencies around the world exist, and people much smarter than me are arbitraging them like crazy. But beyond that, it's a total mystery to me. Um, but what, what I know about gold is that the former gold standard would not allow them to print money as they did during this crash. So I don't know. Let's talk about currencies and what on earth people are doing with them. And does the gold standard have anything to do with it? Okay, so let's dive in. What what first off, what is a currency? And and that is the the money that is considered legal to use to pay debts with in your country is your currency. And today virtually all currencies are paper. Right? I mean, you have coins, but let's just call it all paper. The the yeah. that is that the thing that you're using to represent value doesn't have any intrinsic value of its own. It's a coin, but it, it's made out of nothing. You know, it's use. It's some some cheap metal. It, it's not it's silver. A it's not gold. Representation of value. Right. It's a representation of value, and the value of that thing is based one hundred percent on people's faith in it. I mean, it's just seashells on the seashore that we're picking up and saying, "This is money," and yeah. I am going to exchange this for your for your bow and arrow and somebody be like, well, hold on a second. I can pick up seashells on the seashore all day long. I don't really want to exchange something that took me a lot of effort to make here in exchange for this crap seashell you've got. (laughs) You got to get me something use that I know has value or will store value. And so it took a while to develop the concept of money because it requires faith, right? And um, one of the things that 
you're believing in when you're taking somebody's paper dollars or any other form of money, seashells, gold, whatever it is, is that it's a storehouse of value. It it will hang on to the value of the thing that you got rid of in exchange for it. Mm-hmm. So if you if, if you sell me your car, um, I get the car, which is real goods, and it has real value to me. I go to work in it. I can drive around. I can get something valuable out of it. It's an end use of its own, right? It has it has value in its own right. Yes. But the stuff I gave you, that paper, those digits in your bank account, yeah. that only has value if somebody else will take that in exchange for other goods that you would like to have. Mm-hmm. Let's say a college education or a different car or you'd like to buy a house. Someone's got to be willing to take that. And it's based on faith that they in turn can unload those digits on somebody else down the road for something else that's useful, food, gasoline. So the whole thing, money is built on faith that it will store the value that you you put into it. And I think it's also based on necessity, the necessity of its existence. And money's been around for centuries because it's difficult to transfer one good for another physically. It is. It makes it money makes that kind of um, transaction possible, literally. And now, I mean, you know, that's you think of like going to a market and, you know, transferring your chicken in exchange for a plate or something. Yeah. But what we have now is amazingly complex cross-border transactions that are only possible because of money and because of computers. Yeah, 100% right. So, you know, if... I mean, basically what you're saying is that if you didn't have money, you'd start to invent it right away because of the, right. the difficulty of translating your chicken into that belt that you want. Yeah. Because that guy's got all the chickens he wants. He's like, man, I need the belt. He's like, well, I don't want a chicken. So essentially. Yeah, maybe, maybe he wants a fish that day. Exactly. He wants a fish that day. This, this barter system is actually your uncle, your uncle Steve, figured out how to transfer or what they call roll uh, natural gas out of, let's say, Wyoming all the way to Georgia, um, where there's no pipeline that goes all the way to Georgia that one person owns. And so they would have to actually barter the gas for other gas and change and barter all the way along. But they were all bartering the same object and it was still not that easy to do. Right. If you're trying to barter a a chicken for a belt, you know, you really got to hope that somebody making belt needs a chicken or you've got to you you, you really have to do a two stage transaction. You have to go to the guy at the belt and say, well, you don't want my chicken. What do you want? He says, well, um, I would really need a shirt. So then you got to go find a guy who's got a shirt that would fit this guy who's got the belt. Who wants a chicken? Mm -hmm. And you can see that, you know. That's going to be a, a slow transaction. And as a result, the economy moves very, very slowly in that yes. environment. So lo and behold, we have currencies. Yeah, but it's tricky to get to them. I mean, think about what do we got to do now? I got to go to you and say, look, man, I've got this seashell here. And the guy and the seashell is going. I'm going to give you the seashell and you're going to give me the belt. And the guy will go like, well, why in the world would I do that? And he said, well, because this is a very rare seashell. And he's just got the number five on it. 
this five represents a shirt. You can get a shirt with that five from that guy over there. He'll take this seashell with the five on it. You can hand it to him and he'll give you a shirt. Or you could go get, you know, Cheerios down there. So we have, think of how hard that is. We have to agree that this seashell is going to be representative of a certain value. We have to all come to agree on it. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting thing to think about. Like it's it's very, very hard until it's easy, you know, like like once everybody is kind of like, oh, yeah, that five, I'll take that. OK. And then all of a sudden that five has value. Yeah. Done and done. Yeah, done and done. Right up until when some clever person realizes that there's seashells just like that one all over the beach about, you know, 100 miles away. And they go there and collect a wheelbarrow of seashells, scratch a five on them, and bring them to the market. And pretty soon, people start to realize, wow, there's an awful lot of these number five seashells. Um, maybe I'm going to try to get two of them for my yeah. shirt. You yeah. know? And since there's so many of them, somebody goes, wow, this guy won't do a deal for one seashell with a five on it. Maybe he'll do a deal with two of them. And they try, this is somebody who really wants a shirt, right? They go like, okay, come on, man. Everybody's been taking one seashell for your shirt. And this guy's adamant. No, I'm not taking one seashell anymore. I'm, I, I'll do the deal for two. And now all of a sudden, we have inflation. The, the shirt now costs twice as many seashells as it did a minute ago. And now seashells only buy half as much. And the word goes out through the whole marketplace Whoa, you're going to need two seashells for that shirt, two seashells for the belt, two seashells for the chicken. All of a sudden, everything costs cost twice as much. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't really cost twice as much. It's just seashells that now our faith is that there are two of them will buy a shirt. Okay. And the, the thing that happened with the seashells is that they were easy to replicate. They were easy to make more seashells. I just went and got a beach full of seashells. Now, this is kind of where we we shifted off of seashells onto something harder to get your hands on, something that would hold the value longer. Um, and around right, you know, beginnings of civilization, metals that wouldn't rot away, that wouldn't break into pieces, you know, seashells would break into pieces, you could get too many of them on a beach. Um, you weren't sure it was the right kind of shell. But if you could use some kind of metal that wouldn't rot, like wood rots, right? You could try wooden coins. People did that, but they rot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so a metal ultimately became everybody's answer. Everybody started using a metal. And um, so kings and rulers would uh, have everybody collect these metals and they tried different kinds of metals. But the ones that worked out the best were gold and silver. Um, they're not easy to find. And they so as a result, they tend to hold their value. You can't just go grab a seashell and throw it into the market. You know, you got to you got to mine the gold and, you know, you got to refine it and then you can finally turn it into a coin. So um, coins started to make uh, sense out of out of uh, as a as a storehouse of value for money. And that went all over the world, those coins. It's like man, yeah, I'll take that for this because I can weigh it. It's got two grams. That's worth a chicken. You have five grams. That's worth five shirts. You know, I mean, 
you, you're you always going to be bargaining what the value is, that you can buy with the gold coin, but you're not just out in the middle of nowhere with seashells. Maybe somebody doesn't want to take. As word got around that you could store value in these coins, they became more and more acceptable and they became denominated in more and more smaller weights so that you could translate them easily. And that's where we started to get really effective money. So the history of the history of money is tied directly to kind of the history of gold coins and silver coins as a storehouse of that money. And um, and still rulers would recognize the the uh, the pragmatic value to them of making a little less gold in the coin or a little less silver in the coin. <laughs> I know. I was just reading something about gold coins that said that, um, that it was really easy to chip a tiny bit off of them without anyone being able to notice. Yeah. And so people would do that and eventually have enough teeny tiny chips to melt them down and have, you know, some amount of gold that was worth something. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And how long, how long do you think it would take somebody who is trying to pay for a war to figure out that Hey, if I can get people to take this coin that's got nine tenths of the gold in it that it had a minute ago, right? Wow, I can pay off the war. I just saved some money. I just yeah. saved some real money, and then they would, you know, they could use that extra extra ten percent that they just created there as more coin to pay off their debts. And it was very hard for rulers around the world. The history of mankind's uh, currencies has been inevitable. I, I would say inevitable. I don't know if there's ever been a currency that didn't get screwed up by the guy, the guys who were running the country. It's so hard for them because because why? Because they they want to stay in power. And, and one of the ways to stay in power is you have wars. So you go to war and you beat the other guys. And now you have you have more country or you give people things. Right. You give them food, you give them, you know, you try to create more jobs. You, it's all it's all kind of goes back to some basic simplistic stuff. You either go to war and take stuff from other people or you give away people, give away stuff to people and they'll like you. They'll like you for both of those things and you can continue to be the ruler. And uh, democracies are not immune to any of that. I mean, politicians are politicians. They want to stay in power. And as a result, it's very, very hard for them to not destroy their currency over time. Very hard. Because if you if you just, you know, throw a few. I mean, look, at we as we move from coins to, to currents to, to what are called fiat currencies or paper dollars, that move's been underway for a long, long time. And and it's just getting the public to accept these things. And there's some advantages to paper dollars. You can make different denominations, but they're basically the same size of paper. They don't cost you anything to make it, hardly, right? And so um, there's some real advantages for people that carry it around. And um, and you can have $100 bills, $20 bills, $5 bills. And it's easy to carry um, compared to, you know, big sacks of coins. And um, those advantages made it easier for people who ruled to put paper in there and get it accepted. And so that's come a long way from the days when no one would accept paper. They would only have uh, gold coins. Um, but America had paper clear back at the beginning of its of, of, of the country. 
they produced paper to pay off the troops because they didn't have any money, right? They didn't have any real values. They just said, look, these are essentially our debt to our soldiers. And ultimately, those debts didn't get paid off. They got paid off on like a dime on the dollar or something down the road. And, you know, people would buy those notes from soldiers who desperately needed money to survive. People would buy that for, you know, here, I'll give you a dime. And they would take the note and then they would try to hopefully they would speculate that the thing would go up in value or the government would pay them off. And uh, there's a lot of scandals about that in our history you can read about. But the the essence of that is that paper has been around for a long, long time and it has a real usefulness. You can print it. And if you can get people to take it, you can you can get yourself over some really bad bumps that are going along there. So that's why governments like to do it. It gives them some flexibility on uh, on handling emergencies that come along that you wouldn't have with gold, right? Yeah, how, how would that work if we still had a gold standard? How would that actually prevent outsized inflation? Well, you, you wouldn't be able to prevent it literally um, because so if you- You still have some up and down, but it, it sort of controls it, doesn't it? Well, theoretically it does because the, the what you do to get people to accept paper is you would say, um, this paper can be traded in for 20 ounces of gold or for an ounce, let's say an ounce of gold. So here's a $20 bill in paper and you can get one ounce of gold for this $20 bill. Anytime you want to go to any bank and they'll hand you the gold piece. Go to the federal government window and they'll hand you the gold piece. That was our standard from the time we got going as a, comp a country. Uh, our founding fathers were very nervous. They they had seen the use of fiat paper currencies in Europe, and they'd seen the value of those currencies be destroyed by inflationary practices by just printing them, printing them, printing them, pay for wars, and uh, you know you got to pay you got to pay for those military munitions that you're going to blow up, and they would print paper. And our our founding fathers saw the extremities that would happen. I mean, countries would go to war over this stuff. And people would die by the hundreds of thousands um, because, I mean, World War II effectively, if you want to jump forward in time from back in, in when, before the founding of America, jump forward in time to World War II, you could really strongly argue that the, uh, th that the printing of paper by the German government created this insane inflation that gave rise to uh, radical like Hitler and ultimately led to World War II. So the history of mankind is that, you know, rulers will destroy their currency out of expediency and the people suffer. And so our founding fathers said, hey, that ain't gonna happen here. We're gonna have a currency backed by gold. And they printed paper, but the paper was redeemable in gold, okay? And that built up the faith of the people. So you would, you would start to have a lot of faith in the currency if you could go into any window of any bank and. Here's my dollar bill. Give me, you know, one twentieth of an ounce of gold. Yeah. And then you could take that to any other country or to a local merchant or whoever, and it would be the same as current as paper money. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, if a country had its currency based on gold, then nations around the world, people in those other nations are much more willing to accept those paper currencies in their country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you know I take a dollar bill and I can convert it to gold, 
you know, America will convert sure. it. Yeah, I'll take a dollar bill. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take a dollar bill. In fact, I think I'd rather have it than, uh, you know, the French franc or the, you know, and, and you look around and you see in the history of currencies that the, the countries that based their currencies on hard, uh, they, they made their currencies based on something like gold, those currencies rapidly became accepted around the world. And that's a really key thing. Ultimately, the, the, the power of a currency is its acceptance around the world, that someone takes it in and it's a storehouse of value. Just as an aside, China is trying to have its currency become a standard currency in the world. It would ultimately like to be the currency that everybody trades in. Right now, everybody trades in the dollar, pretty much. I mean, the dollar is the world's reserve currency, which means that banks all over the world have this currency sitting in their bank and you can exchange it for local currency and exchange it back into dollars. You can trade oil in, in this currency all around the world. So China wants to have that happen to, because that would be very powerful for their economy. It's a huge advantage to have the world trading your currency. You don't have to go through a translation through another currency. Um, but they've just suffered a terrible blow in that regard because they devalued their currency against the dollar. They basically said, wow, you used to be able to exchange, uh, you know, six of these to the dollar, and now we're going to let you change, get eight. And so somebody who took the, the Chinese currency called a yuan, somebody in, let's say, Latin America took that currency in exchange for oil, let's say in Venezuela. Okay, we don't, well, we won't take dollars, we'll take this yuan because we want this relationship with China. They took them in at a relationship of six to the dollar. And three months later, it's eight to the dollar. And all of a sudden, their ability to buy as much stuff with that Chinese currency doesn't translate to other countries. It's, oh, well, I can go buy it in China, but mm -hmm. nowhere else. I just mm -hmm. lost 25% of my money by selling you this oil and taking your currency. I should have taken dollars, right? So we're kind of wandering in the woods here a little bit because this is a huge subject. I want to kind of huge subject. Yeah. yeah, we haven't even gotten to the idea of investing in currencies. No, um, not yet, because we we still need to understand something about inflation in a gold-backed uh, currency in, in a gold-backed fiat currency. Well, the fact that it's backed by gold doesn't mean that you can't inflate it. It just means that you might get caught. Okay, <laughs> right? So if the government has a printing press and the wait, printing say that, wait, 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 say that again. <laughs> okay. If the government has a printing press okay. and it prints dollar bills and every one of those is redeemable in gold, sure. then one way to do that would be to make sure you have a dollar's worth of gold for every single dollar bill you print, right? Right. But who's in charge of making sure you do? You are. <laughs> No, you're the government. You're in charge. You you have, yes. yeah. You're the U.S. Treasury, the U.S. Mint. So what if the what if somebody comes along and says, "Look, we really need to pay for this war with Mexico or this war in the, with Spain or whatever. We need some money, and um, it'd be really nice if you printed a few extra dollars because look." No, we got all this gold sitting in Fort Knox. Nobody's exchanging dollar bills for gold, all of it, 
any given, the gold doesn't all go out into the people. So we really don't need to have a gold coin for every dollar bill out there. We don't need one of those. If we had half of the gold. And look at everything we could do if exactly. we could only just spend a little bit more money. We could pay for so many things and it's... we could do so much good for the country. Absolutely. And the, like, the biggest argument for the government printing off some dollar bills and putting those into the economy, like just hand them to the banks and lend it out, is that the business cycle can be really harsh. If, if all of a sudden there's a crash in the economy and the federal government has no ability whatsoever to pour money in to kind of soften the blow, then the blow is the blow. It's just like people get hammered, they go broke, they go out of business, they don't have jobs. And there's a lot of suffering all over the country. And the federal government looked around and said, geez, we could prevent a lot of this suffering if we just had currency to pour in at the right time. We could do well, that. Well, that's exactly what happened. The, in the early 1930s, we went off the gold standard because we were in the Great Depression and they needed to do something about it. Well, we actually didn't go off the gold standard, interestingly enough. We didn't actually go off the gold standard until Richard Nixon took us off in 1971, I think. We were actually still on the gold standard all the way to 1971, which theoretically meant that any country that had a pile of dollars sitting in its banks could exchange those dollars for gold and take the gold out of Fort Knox and move it to their country. And all over the world, you had countries like Great Britain and France, all of them on the gold standard in uh, in the early 1900s, okay? Okay. And then we had World War One, and they blew up all kinds of wealth, not to mention the human suffering. They blew up a huge amount of what they owned, right? They paid gold to buy bombs, and then they blew up the bombs. The bombs didn't go to create jobs, they just blew up, and that money was gone. And so, Germany and France and Great Britain and the, Amer and the United States blew up a ton of their wealth in World War I in this huge war. And after the war, they were all looking around going, wow, we've got serious problems here. We're having a depression. We're having a huge recession, we could say, after the war. So everybody did different things. Um, oh, after World War I, Germany was you know, required to pay reparations to France and Britain so France and Britain could get their money back. Well, the Germans didn't have it. They'd just been devastated by this war. So what they did is they printed money. And they said, here you go. <laughs> you need 20 million of these? Fine, here we go. Print them off. There you go. All set. Done. And wow, they printed all this money. The stock market went up like a rocket. You know, it was like, hey, this is working pretty good. We're, we're printing money. We're paying off France, keeping them off our butts. And, we, and the stock market's going up. People got more jobs. And everything seemed to be rocking along pretty good. And then all of a sudden, people started thinking, wow, there's, I don't know if I want to take one seashell for the shirt. I might want two seashells for the shirt. There's a lot of seashells rolling around, a lot of Deutschmarks floating around. And they said, give me more. And it started this cycle. And within a couple of years, you needed a wheelbarrow of, of German money to go buy a loaf of bread. The money became useless. They printed it and printed it and printed it and printed it until it, there was so much of it floating around that nobody that nobody would take just a, a few Deutschmarks. You needed a billion Deutschmarks to buy bread. Which is an example of 
no gold standard equaling massive inflation. Oh, no, they were still, they, I think they were still on the gold standard. They were just printing money. This well, is 1920. On the gold standard, if they were printing money, sure they can. But doesn't the gold standard mean that you have to have the amount of gold in your country's treasury somewhere as you have printed money? No, we already learned that the the treasury department could figure out that wow, we only need half the gold because nobody's redeeming all the money. So well, we'll, well, you said that, but I thought that that meant we went off the gold standard. No, we still on the gold standard as far as those those now the people. Nobody the people don't that the gold standard. Oh yeah, the people don't know this is happening. They don't know they've printed more money than they have gold, right? They don't know. The government's doing it. So the German people think they're still on the gold standard is still a good, you know, but they can oh, exchange so they're it. Just basically what they're saying though. Okay, fine. Okay. So you're still on the gold standard. I think I get what you're saying. You're still on the gold standard in everyone's minds, but they've just revalued the amount of gold um, per dollar. No, per they, of course they don't do that. Well, they would have to, or else they're not on the gold standard. What am I missing here? Well, you're missing that the governments are full of evil people who, okay. they're, they're not evil, but they're human. And they're trying to pull off a magic trick of printing. So you're saying, okay, when did this happen? What are you talking about? Well, repeatedly over history, but this one we're talking about is 1920. After World War II, World You're War One, nineteen twenty, secretly, conspiratorially, people in the government, somehow in a secretive way—I don't know how it could possibly be a secret—devalued the dollar against gold. Okay, here's how you do it. Yeah, I know it, but here's how you do it. In fact, I've been in countries where this was going on. It's amazing. The government says the exchange rate of this for gold is X. Right. Whatever it is. Yeah. OK, so, OK, well, it's been that and it's still that. But what happens is you flood the market with all this paper. People start to go, well, I'm not going to take, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to be willing to exchange my gold coin for twenty dollars. I'm not going to do it. I need forty dollars. OK, the government says it's still 20, but I'm not taking 20. I'm taking 40. You with me? So you get a sure. you get street price, and then you get the price that they they'll swap it at the bank, and this is the beginning of a black market in gold. And this is always what happens: is you get this this black market starts with real people realizing, wow, I need more paper to give up my gold, and gold prices start to go up in the street. But the government doesn't want to recognize it because it would, it would have to admit that it is devaluing their currency. You following me? Okay. Yeah, all right. All right. Sure. Okay. So let's, let's, let's jump forward to 1932. FDR okay. becomes president. United States is on the gold standard. And it, the exchange rate for gold to, a, to dollars has been ballpark $20 in paper for one ounce of gold. So that's just been the exchange rate all along, right? But um, what's happening is that people are scared. The stock market's crashed. Um, and, and agriculture's going through a dust bowl. And it's really a train wreck everywhere economically. And people are afraid. And so one of their fears is that paper currency 
in this kind of an environment tends to be manipulated by governments. Okay, so now Americans are going like, wow, we can see what's happened in other places like Germany. It just happened there. What would happen if the federal government starts printing paper like crazy in order to get us out of this big problem? Well, my paper is going to become worthless. So people started to hold on to gold. They started to hold on to gold and buying gold, buying gold, buying gold. And what that did is it took money out of circulation that normally would have been consumed. So if instead of people going down and buying a new suit, they put the gold in a bucket and buried it in the yard. All right. Mm -hmm. So what FDR did is he said, look, this is this is not getting us out of this problem. We need people confident and consuming. Therefore, although we're on the gold standard, I am now confiscating all the gold. No, he did not confiscate the gold. Yeah, he did. You read that in some crazy book. Uh, Come no. on. No. Go look it up. I am going to Google. Literally, I'm going to Google it right now because I do not believe you. I know. Google FDR it away. confiscating gold. All right. It's okay. Well, let me just let me just explain. Oh, oh you back it up now. All right. Back okay. it up before I get an answer from Google. <laughs> let me explain. If you kept gold, you went to jail. Okay, so he not only confiscated the gold, he made it a criminal enterprise, as in some sort of criminal enterprise against the, the people of the United States to hold on to any amount of gold. If you hung on to gold you and got caught, you could go to jail. And people went to jail. They absolutely threw people in jail who were trying to keep gold because they were afraid of what FDR was going to do to the currencies. So he not only confiscated it, he made it illegal to own it and trade it. And you'd go to jail if you did it. It was hard right. core. I take it back. You are correct. <laughs> did you look it up? I looked it up. It's called the Gold Reserve Act of Jan January 30th, 1934. This is from Wikipedia, which is always correct which required that all gold and gold certificates held by the Federal Reserve be surrendered and vested in the sole title of the U.S. Treasury. It outlawed most private possession of gold and um, changed the nominal price of gold from $20.67 per troy ounce, whatever that is, to $35. Yep. This price change incentivized foreign investors to export their gold to the U.S. while simultaneously devaluing the U.S. dollar in an attempt to spark inflation. There you go. So that is nuts. Isn't that crazy? So guess what? It was so devious. So it was from 1933 to 1974. It was illegal for U.S. citizens to own gold in the form of gold bullion without a special license. Yep. On January 1st, 1975, these restrictions were lifted and gold can now be freely held. Yep. What on earth? Like. <laughs> Welcome to America with a K. So. I knew nothing about that. Isn't that interesting that people don't teach that in high school? I find that so fascinating. I so, feel like we constantly are like, why didn't they teach that to me in high school? Exactly. Or college. It's, it's like un-American to, to admit that at one point in time, um, the president of the United States felt that he had the power to really sort of defraud the American people. He, he essentially. Okay, no, so let me let me offer what is my guess is their argument. 
if we are holding a piece of gold for every dollar in the US, why should anyone have to keep gold? Because they can just turn it in and get dollars back and it's going to be exchangeable at any point. And that way all the gold is kept safe in the US Treasury. Yeah, except right? they didn't have the gold in the US Treasury. And they were very worried that if there was continuing people to demand gold in exchange for paper, they would run out of gold before they ran out of paper. So look at what he was able to do. He had the gold at 20 bucks an ounce for pretty much the history of, the, of America. And within a matter of a couple of months, he turned it into a $35 per ounce trade, mm -hmm. which the rest of the world could do, but you couldn't do as an American. So if you had dollars over in Europe, you could swap that for gold in America at 35 bucks. Well, what people did instead is swap gold from Europe into America and took the $35. <laughs> so it was it was it was a, a, a really kind of a tricky way. But think about it. I mean, he knew that the value a lot of the world's gold in the US. Yeah, well, that right? was a general idea, right? Because because at that very same time, it's good to know that the rest of the world was getting off the gold standard. They were recognizing that the limitations of the gold standard of what's called a hard currency is that if you want to pour money into your economy to try to make it grow, you you can't do it. You can't just pour gold in because you can't get your hands on it. Gold is expensive, right? And what these economies in Britain, in France, in Germany, Britain did it first. The other guys were late to the party to get off the gold standard and just have a fiat money. And that way you can pump money into your economy and get people back to work. That was the general idea. And this is when Keynesian economics, you're going to hear stuff like, yeah, Keynesian economics. This is when Keynes was writing as an economist and he was basically saying, look, the, what governments can do here that's actually useful, most of what governments do is completely not useful. But in this particular case, a government can do something that the people can't do. A government can print dollars and pump it into the economy so much that people are willing to just spend. They start to feel like they're making more money. Their wages are going up. Inflation looks pretty good in that environment. And that's what Keynes was pushing. And his argument is that FDR didn't do it enough. Had he done it even more, we would have come blasting out of the Depression uh, much, much earlier. Um, jump forward to today. And we have been in a Keynesian experiment for the last six years with first Bernanke and now Yellen at the Federal Reserve pumping money into the U.S. economy, just printing it out of thin air. And the argument from some economists is that it hasn't been enough. They should have done ever more, right? They should have done more. Um, Japan has been going through this for 20 years, and the argument is they should have done more. They should have done more. So the Keynesian argument is that, you know, is that you should just pump the money in there. The trouble is the very fact that the government's pumping money scares people. It's scary that the federal government is intervening in the markets in what are otherwise so-called free markets. And when people see the federal government intervening over and over and over again, they start to think like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. All this is going on just says that there's a big problem. So I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to save money. I'm going to get rid of debt. I'm not going to go down to the stores all the time. I'm not, right? And that's exactly what's been happening in the last six years. Yeah, well, and having the government put money into the markets means that your expectations and your predictions of what the market is going to do have just become null and void, essentially, because now there's this 
outside influence that's changing things. That is a really good insight. That is a really good insight. And right now, as we speak, we're a few days from Janet Yellen, or actually, I guess as we speak, by the time you hear this next week, uh, she will have made a decision on raising interest rates. And well, you right. may... That's exactly. That's what I constantly think of is, you know, at any point, the government can just change interest rates and nobody knows what they're going to do ever. And so we all just make sort of semi-educated guesses. When should I sell a house? When should I buy a house? When should I, you know, when is money cheap? When is, when is money not going to be cheap? Yep. It's and, hard to know. And so essentially what they've done is they've, in, 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 in an attempt to get rid of very sharp and, and difficult economic cycles that existed back on the gold standard that would last a year or two years and then you'd be out of it, They've exchanged that by trying to have this soft landing and, and soften the blow by having a lot of intervention by the federal government. And the result is the markets now are have kind of shifted to being under control to a certain degree of what's going on at the Fed. And that's scary because now nobody knows what's going to happen. So I, I so we need to we need to get to actually investing in currencies. Which we're not going to at this point. We're not point. going to today, but I think next time let's get to that one. Yep, except I will leave it with this. It, it, we, we may get to it, we may not get to it. Let me just leave it with this. That one of the best investors in the world is Warren Buffett. And Buffett basically's view of gold as a currency uh, to invest in is this. He said it like this. Would All of the gold in the world melted down into one giant brick would be about 90 feet across the diagonal now whether it would fit into a baseball diamond it'd be it'd be about 90 feet high and about uh 90 feet long a square a cube of gold so it would fit into a baseball diamond and and easily in that little baseball diamond all the gold in the world he said which would you rather have that cube of gold or what it would buy today which would be i think he said it was 18 exons 18 exons and all of the agricultural property in America. <laughs> Which would you rather have? And 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 Buffett's view of it is is that those things an exon and a farm are producing something fundamental to a crisis. Energy and food. People are going to want energy, they're going to want food. They're not going to want gold. You can't eat gold. So Buffett's point is that you still want assets that produce for you some sort of return on those assets, and gold does not. It is just a hedge. And as a hedge, it has no real intrinsic value of its own. And what we want is we want things as investors, even when things are really hitting the fan, we want things that have intrinsic value and produce cash flow off of that thing. And that because the cash is going to be in the form of what? Who knows? It might be seashells, it might be gold, but people need to eat and people need to run their cars. And those things have value different than putting money into a kind of a fiat currency or to gold. So I think I'm going to wrap the whole currency thing. Oh, oh, we're wrapping the currency. I think so. so. The, the wrapping of the currency is just don't do it. The wrapping of the currency is it's it's too hard. That goes into my too hard box. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that's too hard for me to invest in. And currencies are one of them. 
would it make do sense? Do you consider gold and silver to be part of the world of currency? Like when I think of currency, I think of a given nation's currency. Right. Do you no. include gold and silver in that? Not anymore, because virtually every every country in the world is fiat currency, meaning paper currencies. And that means really you can't walk around and exchange gold for stuff in stores. And that's really well, I mean, in the sense of deciding to invest in it's in currency or gold or silver. Well, if you invest in currencies, essentially you're investing in uh, you're trying to figure out how one currency is going to do against another currency. That's right. essentially it. And that's and a, that that's hard. And silver as well. And then silver and gold is essentially a hedge against disaster. That's. Uh, and and some kind of a hedge against inflation like gold ultimately um, probably keeps up with inflation, but there's probably better ways to do it because ultimately so does agriculture, you know, ultimately so does energy. Ultimately, you know, there are better ways to keep up with inflation than to put your money in something that does not produce cash flow. Got it. OK, so I'm hearing don't invest in currencies and. Gold and silver are a case-by-case basis. They're, uh, you know what, if you're going to use gold and silver, if things get to that, then I would suggest you also invest in ammunition and weapons. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're going to need them. Apocalyptic scenario. You're going to need them to protect your gold and silver. <laughs> Should you also buy a wheat mill? Probably. Probably. So I'm laughing a little bit and it, there's nothing wrong with having a small amount of your assets in in gold as some sort of a hedge against utter disaster. But uh, in general, let's look for things that have cash flow coming off of them, which would also do well in an inflationary or deflationary environment. Yeah, my guess is that somebody who understands currencies well could really make obviously lots of people make money on trading currencies, but it's trading. It's not investing in something that provides value exactly exactly you really have to know what on earth you're doing in order to do that i'm i'm a river guide ex-army guy and that's way over my pay grade there are really good investors that do that all the time but i'm not one of them and it 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 uh it comforts me a bit that buffett very rarely invests in any kind of thing like that so i'd say for for now let's just say that that's an interesting potential bucket but not really the focus of our education. Okay, cool. Everybody send your questions to questions at investedpodcast.com. And thanks so much. Hey, it's great talking. I guess it's time to go play. All right, bye. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.